Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 125th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Sabrina Lowell. Sabrina is an advisor and principal with Private Ocean, an independent RIA in the San Francisco area that oversees 2.2 billion of assets under management for nearly 1,000 affluent clients. What's unique about Sabrina, though, is the path that she took to becoming a partner with Private Ocean. When it was decided last year that the firm she had worked at for the preceding 16 years was going to be sold to an external buyer, And they began the collaborative process of trying to identify what buyer would both be ready and willing to buy out the firm's original founder and give Sabrina and other next generation leaders at the firm an opportunity to move up and grow in the new firm. In this episode, we talk in depth about what the process was like of putting Sabrina's prior firm Mosaic Financial Partners up for sale, how their management team worked with an investment banker, not only to find potential buyers who could afford the acquisition, but who would also be a cultural fit for the firm. The key filters that the firm used to vet its prospective buyers beyond just what buyers were willing to offer financially, including their core values alignment, their compensation philosophy with clients, their investment and financial planning philosophies and serving clients, and the career growth opportunities for staff. And what it's like to actually try to vet a potential buyer to figure out if they're really a good fit or if the firm is just making the mistake of thinking the grass must be greener on the other side. We also talk about the challenges of trying to execute internal succession plans and why Mosaic ultimately decided to go with an external buyer instead, how Sabrina broke the news to her clients that a transition was going to happen, the way her own role has restructured in a positive way once she had the opportunity to work in a larger firm that had more dedicated resources so she didn't have to wear as many hats, and why next generation advisors sometimes can find more upside opportunity in having their firm sold to a larger one than becoming the successor themselves. And be certain to listen to the end, where Sabrina talks about her own challenges in evolution and learning to do business development when she started out as an employee advisor in her early 20s. The structured center of influence strategy her firm uses to cultivate referral relationships that she learned through the Schwab Executive Leadership Program, how her own career path and even what she thought she wanted from her career has changed over time, and Sabrina's key tip for finding out whether a potential advisory firm is really open to adapting and changing as the business grows. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Sabrina Lowell. Welcome, Sabrina Lowell, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me on the show today. I'm I'm excited for today's discussion. There's been so much activity these days in the industry around mergers and acquisitions and and big firm, well, like huge firms buying big firms and big firms buying medium firms and medium firms buying small firms, like wherever you are up the lo- up and down the line, it seems like someone is is larger and willing and interested to buy you if your firm is for sale. And for a lot of advisory firm owners, I know that's kind of a, a point of excitement. It's like the, the penultimate moment of building a firm is when you, you finally get to the point where you're selling it and you get your liquidity event and you know, you've hopefully made some good money that you can retire on. But I know you come at it from the other perspective, which is an employee who is in a firm that got acquired. And, you know, there's been so much bad media 
discussion around what happens to people when their firms are acquired and you know there's synergies that result in cost cuts where lots of people get fired and your culture gets radically changed and like all these negative things happen that I find for so many advisory firms like whenever they hear oh the firm is getting sold it's like a moment of immediate fear and panic and everyone starts getting really nervous and worried and so you know, you you have recently gone through this experience, having your firm getting acquired, ending out in a new firm that's actually a positive environment. And so I, I thought just this would be a good opportunity to talk about like what what's it like when you're in an advisory firm and you get the news the firm is being sold and you're hopefully going along for the ride. Yeah, well I I, I think that that's the key there is is that last sentence when you said, when you get the news that your firm is being acquired. And I would say that the process that we went through was actually quite different. And and I'm sure we'll get into some of the logistics there. But just internally at Mosaic, we had a real value around transparency and, and Norm Boone being you know, founder and CEO. I think that one of the things that he did really well early on was involve other people. So specifically, it was really, I think a lot of the decision making was driven by the management team. So there were four of us that were involved in that process. And by getting people on board and having that as a collaborative discussion that was pretty transparent meant that we as a team we're able to roll that out to staff. And even along the way, we're pretty transparent with staff as well. So help me understand what that means from a practical perspective. Like your management team was involved in shopping the firm, involved in working with the buyer. Like you know, usually at some point the seller has to decide which of the buyer's offers you're going to take. So like was was that a a management team decision and not necessarily an ownership decision about who we're going to sell to? Like what, what level of decision-making actually comes down to the management team in that environment? Yeah. And I, I would suspect that that would obviously vary from firm to firm. So just, you know, backing up a little bit, we had been in discussion, you know, I'd say 10 years ago, if we were having this conversation, I'd, I probably wouldn't have ever predicted the outcome of selling to an outside buyer. Five years ago, I think it was probably not much, it, it wasn't as much of a surprise sort of how, where we ended up. And what I mean by that is we were having really active conversations internally around succession planning trying to have a runway that was long enough to be able to execute a plan and and talking about were we going to do something internal or external and that conversation you know began and and we were pretty engrossed in that and and we can get into that but ultimately you know fast forward a few years at the point that we had decided this looks like it will be an external sale. The management team worked together on that process. And so one of the things that was really enlightening, well, one is we we hired an investment banker and a firm to, to help in that process. And we had gone through a few valuations over a series of years. And ultimately, I think using an outside facilitator within the process, that that also really helped. And 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 what we decided was so we had, had developed 
probably it was back in 20, I think it was 2015. It was an outgrowth actually of the Schwab Executive Leadership Program that I had participated in as someone that was in the G2 management role. And part of one of the projects that I worked on was helping to develop our firm core values. And ultimately, we used the core values as part of the process as a filtering function in looking at other firms, was it going to be a good fit? So specifically, we had four core values, commitment to service, it's our passion, not just a job, intellectual curiosity, and responsible stewardship. And when you use a filtering function like that, all of a sudden, the criteria (laughs) makes it actually really clear, at least on that first cut, who's going to be a good fit? You know, how will our firms work together? Are we aligned on some of these points? So we use that in, I would say, in conjunction with our management team had, had come up with, you know, we wanted a firm that was going to be really aligned on firm values, you know, non-negotiables. It had to be another RIA, had to be fee only, that our clients were going to be well served, leading with financial planning. Also that it met, you know, Norm's criteria as a 95% owner in terms of what he needed on on his end. And and I think the other piece that was really important was opportunity for staff, both career growth as well as potential ownership. And so when we use those two filtering pieces and in working with an outside broker, then the process became much easier to address as a team, putting in the inputs, filtering through, and then having discussion about where we wanted to go. So you you highlighted to me a couple of really interesting pieces there. One one is just that that phenomenon of how important it is that things like core values and culture and investment and planning philosophies of of firms match when an acquisition happens. Yeah, you know, I, I I feel like that's something that gets I don't know at best you probably lip service sometimes. Like, hey, make sure you find a firm that's that's a good fit. But you know, I think for some owners, they just they they get more focused on the check they get when they leave than necessarily the the culture that gets behind and just that's a tough thing sometimes because there can be a lot of a lot of money at stake if you build a a sizable firm but it matters cuz just from a practical perspective if the firms don't line up well then eventually staff doesn't stick around cuz it's not enjoyable to go through like a giant culture shock into a new firm and if staff doesn't stick around particularly in the advisory business clients usually don't stick around cuz they tend to follow the advisors and and staff they've worked with and have some loyalty to. And if they don't stick around, you don't actually get the same check as the owner who's selling anyways. And so to me, the the significance of that phenomenon of trying to find a good fit is, I think, still understated a lot in in the current discussions, at least that I see around mergers and acquisitions for advisory firms. And it's not just about either as the buyer or the seller, like, you know, are they writing us a good size check or does the firm we're buying have, you know, a good amount of revenue and healthy profit margins to make this an economically strong transaction for all parties involved? If you don't line up on the other stuff around philosophically, like how clients are served, how you do planning for them, how you manage portfolios if you're investment oriented, 
revenue model and you're charging us sort of management. Like if you don't figure that stuff out, the clients don't stay. And then the rest of the stuff falls apart anyways. I think that's exactly right. Just as you were saying, the economics are not enough. (laughs) And that I think over time, the wheels are likely to fall off. You hit on one that that I that I've been pretty fascinated about. You talked about clients are loyal to staff that they've worked with and and the way that they've been served. And and I would even take that a step further, which is that I I don't think I was maybe as in tune with previously. Clients Assuming that there's a a base level of technical proficiency and your firm's been around for a while and and that is is I would say considered to be table stakes, clients choose advisors who are like them or who emulate I think characteristics that attract them and part of that is going to be culture, right? It's how do we interact with clients? What does the office feel like when they walk in? when they call, how are questions answered? And when I say how are questions answered, I mean, just going back to this idea around one of our core values being commitment to service, a follow on to that is it's, it's, you know, we operated with the ethos of how do you create client delight? And in looking at partner firms, if that wasn't one of the driving factors about how they interacted with clients, I think clients would be able to tell in a new environment Mm -hmm. that something has shifted very significantly. As we've gotten into, obviously, rolling out some of the new initiatives with clients and and some of the transition in combining the firms, we've we've gotten pretty good feedback from clients. It's almost like (laughs) no news is good news. It's it's I think that there's there are some changes, but for the most part there hasn't been a significant change in terms of how they're feeling cared for. And that was really important to us. So, so help me understand a little more of just how this sort of, I guess like buyer vetting evaluation process worked for you guys. So like you, you, it sounds like as a management team, you'd sort of sat down at the beginning and said, okay, we, we've got a couple of check boxes that just, we have to meet in order for this to work, like they have to align reasonably to our core values. They have to be a fee only RA because we are, and that's important to us. They have to be deep on financial planning because that's our style as well. They have to bring some career growth for staff. And yes, you know, they, they do have to meet the founders financial needs reasonably as well. Like clearly this is a, a factor since at the end of the day, there, there is some legal voting share rights that some, some point have to get sorted out. But but I guess you came to the table saying, okay, we're going to work with an investment banker. They can start bringing some firms to us. And then we're going to use all these things as filters as a management team to try to figure out how do we narrow what inevitably is going to be a fairly large field because there's a lot of buyers for every seller right now. We're going to use this to narrow a large field into a smaller one. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and obviously, there there's a much more in-depth process that I think some of the investment banking firms use in terms of getting really clear about your criteria. But at the high level, those were some of the initial pieces. And I think the other part there, of course, is can you see yourself working with this team? How do the teams gel? So you have your hard criteria, as you described, 
in the dating world, what are called must-haves and can't stands. <laughs> and so you develop that particular list. We did we went through that process both as a management team and then Norm as a as a founder and CEO. He also went through that in-depth process for himself. What would he want in a firm that we partnered with? And I think the clearer that teams and individuals who have decision-making power can get, the easier it's going to be to find a good match. Both from the standpoint of if you have a firm looking on your behalf, i.e. investment banker, but also as you get into the discussions on the back end with that, as you called it, the filtered list. So here we are, we went through that process and and that probably took us, you know, I'd say somewhere in the neighborhood of call it six to 12 months, just getting the process really clear. Just setting the process on your end, like how are we going to vet all these people before you even got to names coming in or six to 12 months, including going through the initial passive names to try to get to a short list? Correct. Correct. I'd say that the first six months is pretty front loaded with updating any valuation information, getting clear on your criteria, and then beginning to get names in. Then the back six months is around beginning to actually go and visit those firms. And it's not just a one-time go visit on site. You want multiple touch points with multiple people within the firm to really understand, again, what is it going to be like day-to-day working with this team? How can we envision our teams collaborating? What will life be like? How close to what we're doing now versus totally different might it be and coming up with essentially a cons- what I would call a consistent process to be able to evaluate those options side by side so that as a team, then we were able to compare that. And so we we spent, yeah, I would say probably the back six months, right, a shorter time just in that that vetting maybe the first half of that, and then the final three months solidifying everything before the deal closed. So start to finish with the investment banker, yeah, I'd call it about a year. Interesting. And so in this second six-month phase, like management team as a whole is going out and doing like on-site visits with potential acquirers and and meeting with them and trying to say like, hey, do we really want to work with you? Did you have even more team involved? Like how... How involved was this process of like you you vetting your buyers while obviously the buyer is trying to vet you as well and make sure like, is this a good team? Are these good people? Will the revenue stay? Will the clients stay? Do they do what we think they do? Right. There's a two-way process for this, obviously, for the buyer as well. That's exactly right. So it starts, I think, at the very highest level, probably CEO to CEO, then management team to management team then beginning to get into on-site visits, both, again, with the management team, but also with other people within the firm, again, to understand just what you said, do they do what they say they're going to do? How does the, when you lift up the hood on the car, what does the engine really look like? What condition is it in? Really understanding all of the moving parts there. And then depending on how serious it might be in looking at that firm as the ultimate partner, then we did get additional people on the team involved. So that's where you know you, you were opening with, gosh, what is it like when 
it's announced that your firm is being sold, our staff, you know, it's a balance between you want to be transparent, but in a cautionary way that makes people feel comfortable, i.e., that their jobs are are secure and that they'll be part of whatever transpires so that you don't have people, as you described, you know, panicking. And so when we would invite other other companies to come on site, you know, we let the team know here's who's coming in and 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 the team was aware that we were beginning we were beginning that process and at the point where we were narrowing in on potential partners. And and then also the other advantage, depending on the size of the firm and the firms that we were looking at had all done deals previously, one, two, or more. And so that was also great because we were able to, our management team was able to go and, and talk with other firms that had integrated in, mm. in Private Ocean's case, they had, there was a firm that came on out of Seattle so there's we have a Seattle office now, which is great. I I grew up there, so it's it's kind of neat to be able to go up and and work out of that office. And so we were able to talk to that team. What was the experience like? What were the surprises? What's been a real benefit? And and talk through that their experience to have a better understanding of what our experience might be in the process. And we did that across a number of firms. Interesting. And and so. What did this sort of filtering process look like for you? Like how many how many names came in in the first six months? How many did you try to get it down to to do this sort of final three to six month in-depth process? I'd say, you know, on the on the serious side, you know, we probably had about six names and then that got filtered down to three that we were we were exploring much more diligently. Okay, so like lots of, lots of names come in initially. Your you know core values, philosophy, deep planning, career growth through staff, et cetera, kind of got you down to a shorter list of six, and then the six got down to three that you went the deepest level of vetting with. That's right, that's right. And so that was a manageable. It was a manageable number, and all of you know, and those firms were firms that we would feel really good about partnering with. Interesting and. And so as you got down to the final list, like how, how did you distinguish amongst them? Like were they, obviously they had to be fairly similar because they checked all your boxes to get to the finalist list in the first place. So what, what becomes the criteria at the end as you're trying to decide which firm would you want to do a deal with when they're all reasonably close and checking virtually all the boxes to have gotten to that point on the list in the first place? I would say that it's probably a very similar process or feel that clients go through when they're hiring advisors. Once you've established, again, that minimum criteria or the table stakes, you know that that the all of the quantitative metrics have been met. Now it's looking at the qualitative pieces, understanding culture alignment, understanding how client work gets done, understanding what employees will be doing on a day-to-day basis, all the way from is it the same type of work to how much work might they have? How might their job be similar or different than it currently is? I.e., is there travel involved or not? Is I mean, that was one that was kind of interesting where some firms are meeting clients maybe at their home or off-site Whereas traditionally our clients are meeting in the office. Now that's not a deal breaker, but it was 
it was an interesting difference in in thinking about how would that how would that look or right you just start getting really real like okay i'm used to the fact that clients come to me so if i'm going to go out to clients if that's the culture in the new firm like my clients at Scala are over the Bay Area. We have lots of bridges. They're very time-consuming to cross. Like This is a material life impact on my day-to-day work habits and experience. If I'm not going to be in an environment where clients come to me anymore, I'm going to be in a firm that's expected to go to them. And like, Not that it's necessarily right or wrong, and I know advisors who have strong views about both, but if you're used to one, the other one is a rather material change in just your day-to-day experience in the firm. That's right. And thinking about the reason that most employees chose to come and work at the firm in the first place also, you know, brings to bear just exactly what you described. How would their life change and would that be would that be a deal breaker for current employees? So so balancing that as well. So as we began to get into some of those nuances, that helped shape the discussion. And ultimately, it was, you know, it also comes down to, again, can you see yourself working with this team? How do the teams gel? What does that feel like on a day-to-day basis? And going back to, you know, we have, we had four core values and Private Ocean has, you know, what they call their, their guiding or what we call our guiding principles. And there is a really strong alignment there. And I think that that was one of the pieces as we got into it that really spoke to us in knowing that the teams would work well together. Interesting. And so how does this decision ultimately get made at the end? Is it it kind of like, hey, all these firms are checking the box quantitatively, I'm, I'm presuming that means like they were all putting offers on the table that were at least in reasonably similar neighborhoods to each other. So there wasn't a monstrous financial gap between them. And so like once the quantitative boxes are checked, as you said, like then, then the qualitative becomes the decision-making criteria. I think that's right. But also, you know, there, there are additional quantitative components, once you get into that final negotiation, that could be needle movers, how the deal gets structured, flexibility versus not, etc. For the the current owners, what does that look like? Is it does it continue to be compelling? And and there's still there's still a period of time where some of those details need to get hammered out. And so in going through that particular process, again, at each point, that continued to private ocean continued to meet all of the criteria that we had outlined. You know, you were asking what were those discussions like? We were meeting internally as a management team and having a lot of in-depth conversation and and each person weighing in on the criteria that we had set and giving opinion and feedback about which firm we would go with. And ultimately, I mean, we were well aligned in choosing Private Ocean, which actually, you know, that makes it also, I think, a win in terms of having a good alignment with your management team. So were there particular, you know, like as a, as you put it, like as a G2 manager, as a next generation manager who came up through the firm and you were, I mean, you, you were at Mosaic for like 15 or 16 years 
as an employee climbing the ranks before ultimately getting to this point where the sale was happening. Correct. So like what were the I mean, what were the driving factors for you being on the on the employee end of looking at this and trying to decide like so so who do I want to do the next stage of my career with since I at least get a little bit of influence into who my who who my firm's buyer is going to be? I would say that actually my, my own personal criteria, if I'm if I'm putting on my employee hat, is is actually pretty similar. Most financial planners are are in this business because we we value the work that we do in helping clients, you know, with their their financials and and wanting to to keep that. I think you know first and foremost. So being able to continue to have that client first approach. I've also been a big advocate around sort of the the comprehensive financial planning and integrating things like coaching skills. You know, we had done a lot of work with Money Quotient, also going through Susan Bradley's training. So there were a number of pieces there that just from my own personal professional development standpoint, but also our employees internally, where wanting to be with a firm that continued to value that side of client work, both both employee growth and then being able to implement that with clients. So that was important. And I think that the other really compelling part that you know Greg did early on, which is to to open up opportunities for partnership for employees. So that was important to me personally, as you ask as an employee, but also I know how important that is for other staff members. I think over the years, you know, hindsight, you know, one of the things that I would would say was a real challenge was retaining talent without a clear path to ownership. So I think there were people potentially, you know, over the years that that unfortunately left that would have been great to retain. And had we had the opportunity with ownership, I, I think that could have been different. Interesting, because as I think you mentioned, you know, the Norm as the as the original founder still had I think you said ninety five percent of the the ownership share so the management had been distributed through the firm but you hadn't done as as much of a broadening around ownership and partnership correct and and you know something that we had done that I I think was a real strength though was regardless of ownership the notion that thinking about the firm and and really running it as a business just from from a responsibility and decision making standpoint having managers and employees within the firm that were empowered to make decisions on a day-to-day basis. So that that worked well, but you're right, there wasn't an ownership transition. Mhm. So, you know, and I I just realized like I hadn't set this up well for folks who are listening about just the background of the size of of the firm of Mosaic itself at the point that you were you know going out to market as a firm to be sold with this ownership and management structure like what what did Mosaic look like as as you were going to the table to go to start that process yeah you had mentioned so I had been at Mosaic for 16 years and so over that period of time I think when I joined we were seven employees and had grown to I think we were 19 at the point that we were out and shopping the firm so a good size 
but not necessarily with full dedicated management. So a lot of hybrid roles, thinking about, I think as many firms do, you know, what does the org chart look like, not just today, but what do you want it to look like in the future if we were a really large company and beginning to understand what are all those different roles and responsibilities and then beginning to have employees move into those job functions, but maybe they're doing that 40 or 50% of their time. So the, so the infamous, like, I'm an advisor, but I also chair our investment committee. And I'm an advisor, but I also oversee HR and operations for the firm. And I'm an advisor, but I've got this other hat as well. Just all those, all those dual roles that you have to take on in leadership as the firm is growing to the point where you can have dedicated folks in those roles. Correct. And so we're at just over 600. And so I, you know, I was serving in the role of advisor, but also COO. We had hired a dedicated operations person who I think really was also key in helping kind of streamline the process as we moved into the sale of the firm, just in terms of making sure that all, all of the T's were crossed and I's were dotted. But we had a number of other people who are, just as you described, sort of in that hybrid role, maybe serving in multiple functions. Mm-hmm. And and how many clients were at the firm, at least roughly? Yeah, we had about 250. Okay. 250 families. Okay. So, so 250 clients, 600 million of AUM. So like you had a you had, or I guess continue to have a, a fairly affluent client base. Like that's a, that's a multi-million dollar, literally multi-million dollar average client that, that the firm is working with. Yeah, that that's right. And obviously we have a number of longstanding clients who have been with us for many, many years who are at the, you know, the lower end of that spectrum all the way up to newer clients coming on that span up into, you know, high or ultra high net worth. And so, so what was the role of the investment banker in, in this process? You know, I feel like that's a, that whole role and, and like the existence of investment bankers is something that I think like 99.9% of advisory firms will never see or touch or interact with until the moment that they're getting ready to sell. And then suddenly they want some either consult on the deal or actually help to find them a buyer and broker the deal. So like, what was the role of the investment banker in the, in the process for you? Like what, what did they do? Well, I'd say that there were a number of pieces. So so one is just level setting around valuation. That was really helpful to have, obviously. a What's a realistic number? Exactly. What's a realistic number? How do you think about that? And also, what do you need to have prepared in order to go through that process to get to an accurate number? So you're, we're not just talking about what are the financials this year or last year, pulling financials and information about your client base over the last five years. And frankly, we had looked back, you know, as long as 10 years, but really you're focusing on the last five and being able to accurately or with some certainty project out as well what's going to happen going forward in terms of, you know, trends around additions, withdraws, et cetera. And that's a good point. It's not even just you know, how many new assets did you add or how much revenue did you add or even just how much in clients did you add? But drilling down further, like, well, how old are your clients? Oh, most of them are retired. Well, like, do you have clients who take one or 2% a year? Or do you have clients who take four or 5% a year? Because you drag two or 3% difference in withdrawals every year for 
10 years of your future owners and like that's a 20 plus percent swing like that can be a hundred million dollar AUM swing over the next couple of years in net outflows so kind of helps to know up front which means you have to actually start digging for that information yourself as the advisory firm to say like oh I guess I guess we probably should get up to date on those numbers because unfortunately I don't think most of us are like our our reporting tools are still not very good at actually giving us real business intelligence I think. Yeah, and and I think that that's right. That's the industry has a ways to go in terms of having that be much more automated. We had been reporting on a number of those items that you that you just mentioned. So we had a pretty good handle on either what that data was or how to collect that data. I think if if the first time that you're compiling that data is when you're talking to an investment banker, that's going to be a pretty lengthy process. So so that would be one thing if there's a consideration around getting a valuation or really understanding what it will take to sell a business starting that process early or just using that to calibrate around what type of metrics or KPIs are you tracking on an ongoing basis to begin to think about how do you move the needle in some of those areas if that's something that's important. So so they certainly helped in the in the process of valuation. And the other piece was around that criteria that I talked about. So while that seems like it might be an easy task, there's a lot of nuanced conversation that needs to unfold around what are the expectations about the criteria and about what people will be doing once the transition has taken place. And and the investment banker can really help in that process. I think good investment bankers have resources to bear there, i.e. they don't just have people who are running the numbers. There are advisors who will work with your team to have those conversations in a very real transparent way and to be able to hold, you know, hold you accountable. Gosh, you said this, you know, you said this last month, that sounds like it's changed. What's the difference here? And so really to, to, to be able to reflect back what it is that you're saying that you want and, and are your actions that you're taking within the process in alignment with what you said that you wanted, or do you need to recalibrate on the criteria? So that, that I think in and of itself was a really helpful piece. The third, the third part was obviously, you know, being a matchmaker, right? So going out to their network and and shopping the firm. And then the fourth is around final negotiation and deal close. Okay. And, and again, and this is something that, that your leadership team was involved with, I guess, with the investment bankers throughout, like for your, for your process, it wasn't just the people who owned the equity were in these conversations. It was effectively your management team, including owners and non-owners who were in leadership positions who were part of these conversations. Since obviously some of them get their check and exit and some of them have to stick around. So they kind of hope it's a deal that they like too. Yeah. And, and I think that's also an important piece, right? So an acquiring firm, depending on what their criteria is, but at least what we found, and it was one something that was important to us is that next generation that's coming into, or that was helping to manage the firm, are they going to be around? And I think in each of the cases, the firms that we got serious in talking to, all of them I think that the client base and the asset base, that was important, but I would say that the talent piece was almost just as important. And we heard that pretty much across the board 
wanting to make sure that the talent that we had attracted would be staying throughout the the transition and for the long term. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the other things that tends to get lost in just the the environment of mergers and acquisitions today and in, in advisory firms in particular. You know, I know for a lot of industries, like M&A really is sort of about cost synergies, which is basically a nice way of saying, you know, some of your staff is redundant for our staff. So when we buy you, we'll fire some of your staff and then the firm will be more profitable because we'll quote unquote trim, trim the fat from the firm. And, you know, for large scaled firms, they're when they merge, there often are some of those redundancies and cost savings and, and people either lose their jobs or at least have to find a new opportunity within the firm. But when you're in advisory world, there's such a shortage of talent. Like we say it and throw it around, but really, if you're a large firm that's trying to grow, the shortage of talent is a very acute problem right now. Just like finding good advisors in their 30s and 40s, and even finding good mid-level management in firms, you know, directors of operations and marketing and investments and planning and all those all those departmental areas where there also aren't very many people with experience in management roles leading teams. Firms that are acquiring today, most of them really want the talent. Like it's not a, oh God, if they buy us, I hope I still have a job. It's like, no, they're buying you because they want you to have a job with them. Like they, they're trying to acquire some of the you as the talent is actually part of the deal. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. It'll be interesting to see just industry-wide how some of the deals unfold. I think that there's a lot of M&A around smaller practices that might have a solo, you know, solo practitioner who is looking to retire. So clearly in that particular deal, that's going to be more of just a financial transaction. But Yeah, if your goal is literally to leave, then, you know, they will exit you and find another advisor. <laughs> Right. Whereas some of these other, I think, coming togethers of firms are around a real benefit is around, just as you said, talent in a, an environment where there's a talent shortage. And also, frankly, you know, geographic representation. So I think a great example is, you know, here in the Bay Area, clients kind of stick to their own geographic area. There are bridges to cross. And while private ocean literally like you're in you're in San Francisco like there, there are bridges to cross and they're far and they get a lot, have a lot of traffic and they get fogged in occasionally right and so being up in San Rafael is a very different i think experience than being in San Francisco and so that's another piece that i get the question about a lot oh gosh are you guys still in the same office what is that like and that was, I think, a really compelling piece for Private Ocean was they previously had clients in San Francisco, but didn't necessarily have an office space or presence here. And so we've kept our office space. And it's great because we have the San Francisco office and Walnut Creek office had clients that were over in Marin. So if we have a client that's up in that area, now we can go and meet out of that office or vice versa. And so the office sharing is is a benefit, not a downside there. Same thing in Seattle. You know, I was mentioning I, I grew up in Seattle. And so I have clients that are up there. And so to be able to go and work out of that office, I saw a client in the fall that I hadn't seen in person in three years. And so 
she got really excited about the fact that I'd be up there and that we get together for lunch. And now I'm getting the call like, oh, when are you coming up next? So that can be a benefit looking at at what are the resources that the the firm being acquired can bring to bear in continuing to build out a firm. And and out of curiosity, who did you work with as the investment banker, at least if it was someone you're willing to recommend because you were happy with the outcome? Yeah, we worked with uh, DeVoe. Okay, so David DeVoe. Yep, yep. Okay, and so he was with you, I guess, all the way through you know, I think it's a valuation to setting your criteria to the shopping matchmaking process and then the final negotiation and the close. Yeah, that's right. And we had looked at a couple different options and, and ultimately decided to go with DeVoe. And, and again, going back to one of the pieces that I think was absolutely key is he's got a whole team, including advisors who come in and and really partner with your firm to have those conversations, not not just about the, the numbers, but around values and criteria. And those are individuals that have been through transitions themselves and so can really speak to that piece. I would say that that's that's one that I think especially, you know, where you know a firm can really be, you know, someone's identity. I mean, even for me being at a firm for 16 years. Yeah, like you're you were Sabrina from Mosaic. Like that was <laughs> you're Sabrina from Mosaic and now you're not. Yeah, there there's a real emotional piece that that gets attached to that transition for sure. And having having an advisor in that process that can also help in navigating that component can I think be the difference in getting over the finish line versus a deal falling apart. So, how did you announce and break the news to clients? So, you know, you do a lot of the, the front end work and once everything is finalized, then there is a, obviously a notification period where you are bringing clients, you know, into the fold with this new firm and, and without going into all the details, but I think this was insightful for us in understanding investment agreements can be written up in different ways. Is that something where you have to have clients opt into versus not? And and our agreement did have that particular piece, which which I think was important for us that clients got to choose. And so we reached out to clients. It's a 90-day notification period to get clients on board. And and one thing that I, I think our team is a real strong suit is around being very process driven. So we were able to get clients through that particular process, talk to all clients about the transition within 30 days. And we had just about all of our clients move over with us. Did clients come? Did everyone come? Like, who didn't come? Or or obviously not their names, but like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, who didn't come? Because, you know, I want to I want to get some clients in the San Francisco area. So. Were there any common threads for who didn't come or, or no, we had like 99.9% of clients came along with us. There were, you know, just a few that, that I think ultimately, you know, decided not to. And, and oftentimes those are the clients that, you know, may not, may not have really aligned well with the firm in general. 
and and so yeah that was i think a real testament both to the relationships that we had developed with clients but also to the process that we used in rolling out that announcement so every client got a phone call we walked through what this meant why we were doing it and just i mean it sounds kind of like a broken record but it has been so grounding to be able to say, here was our criteria. We wanted to find a firm that was aligned with our values. We wanted clients to be well served. We wanted an opportunity for staff and, and, you know, and in thinking about, you know, what's next for our firm, you know, being able to continue to serve clients, you know, long into the future. And, and, and talking also about, some of the pieces that were specific to why we had chosen private ocean, you know, the interestingly, you know, one of the predecessor firms salient, which was Richard Stone's firm norm had worked with Richard Stone at the beginning of his career 35 years ago. So there was this longstanding relationship and history with the partners and staff at their firm and a number of people in the Mosaic office knew a number of people in the Private Ocean office. So it was a natural fit from that standpoint as well, being a Bay Area homegrown, longstanding company where there were real synergies. So as we talked to clients about that, I mean, for the most part, our the feedback was actually really positive. It was interesting too because it was kind of surprising the clients who had some of the clients that you thought might be just a, Oh, okay, great. May have had more questions and they were questions that were really important. What does this mean for me? How will this work? Talk to me about, you know, like, what are you not telling me? Right. And then there were yeah, like, no, no, really. Why, why do you sell what's going on? Like what's give me the, we've been working together for a long time. Give me the inside scoop, Sabrina. Well, I think most clients wanted to know, like, are you going to be around? And I think it made it a lot easier to to articulate not just you know verbally but to say we have four people coming in from Mosaic that will become partners right out of the gate. This isn't just a a sale, it's a long-term fit and we expect that there will be other people within the firm that will ultimately join as shareholders down down the road as well. And so that I think was reassuring for clients because they wanted to know, well, are you going to be there? Relationships are so one-to-one. I mean, you know, it is a team approach, but they, you know, clients want to know, is the advisor that they're familiar with going to be there? And, and so that, that was, you know, I think positive, but then the, the surprising part was some of the clients who asked, well, like, what does this mean for you? And are you happy? And that was I think that was the real human human element too. Yeah. And we get in these relationships with our clients. So they really are bi-directional, right? Like we're worried about them and they get they get worried about us. Yeah. And so I, I think in a lot of ways it's it's even deepened the relationship that we have with some of our clients, being able to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. But I think you make a good point as well that I mean to me kind of my my takeaway of sort of what did, what did clients want to know at the end of the day? Like, you know, what's in it for me as the client, right? Like, you know, bully for you, you got sold. Like, why do I care? You know, how does this change or impact me personally as a client of the firm? And are you, 
my advisor, like, are you still going to be around? And that, that's most of what it comes down to for the, for the clients, not necessarily all the corporate stuff that we like to talk about sometimes. Yeah. And, and that was something we wanted the messaging to be consistent and transparent with clients. And so we, we came up with those important talking points. And, and as we went through the conversations, I think recalibrated around what do you lead with, right? It's like, I have some news to share. And, and I realized you don't bury the the headline. Like, <laughs> like yeah. what does this mean for me? And started putting that right up front. I want to share some news with you. This is going to be a positive change because where that, that positive change got buried at the back end, I think clients were kind of holding their breath throughout the call. Because they can read between the lines. They know you're building up to something. <laughs> so like, tell me what it is already. Yeah. It's like, this is going to be a positive change. And here's why we think that here's why we made the decision. Here's what we think the impact to you will be. And, you know, what questions do you have? And in rolling that out consistently, it meant that clients felt like they knew what was going on and what to expect with the next step. And, and I think a lot of clients gave good feedback because this was in the fall. So this was in September. And leading up to year end, obviously, there, there's a component to it. You have to say, well, these things will stay the same. Inevitably, some things will change, right? We, we picked a firm that is well aligned with philosophy, but some things will change. There may be, you know, investment decisions that are, that are different. The software will be different. Those are going to be positives. You know, the name on the door, of course, will be different. But talking about the reality that things will change and I think that also gives clients the heads up or expectation that there will be, it's that signposting, right? Right. If we can signpost for clients, then as we're moving through that transition, they know that they don't exactly know what it is that they're going to be expecting, but then they know that there will be, be change on the horizon. So as we've moved clients onto our new investment platform and we're using Tamarack, that process in realigning portfolios and getting clients loaded in there has been, I think, a relatively smooth process so far. Fingers crossed, right? We're still in the thick of it, but yeah. Interesting. And so take us back for a moment that you said earlier, like if I if I'd asked you about this ten years ago, you you would have said that the goal or the anticipated endpoint was to queue up for an internal succession plan, and and obviously now that's not where you've ended out. So what what changed? Like I know for a lot of firms, they sell externally because they get to a point where the owner is ready to sell. They look at doing an internal transition. There's just not enough time to put the structure and the depth of people in place that's necessary. So they kind of compressed time horizon and, and no choice. But as you said, like you did start this conversation 10 years ago, you even, it sounds like had some intention or expectation or idea that this was going to culminate in a internal succession plan. It's not where it ended out. So what, like what changed? Yeah, I would say 10 years ago, we were sort of informally having conversations and, and building out the firm in a way that, that there would be continuity and that the firm could operate without relying on 
one or two individual people, i.e. having a structure where an internal succession could be a very natural fit. And then as we continued those discussions, that's why I was saying five years ago, that's probably when it got more serious and began to really delve into the details. And that was the first time that we had gone through a firm valuation. And there's there's a piece around the the economics that at a certain size, depending on what what that internal succession looks like, it can become really difficult to make that work internally unless you're unless you're discounting heavily or or unless you start early enough to have a long enough runway to have that play out. So just the the economics of what does it take to buy the firm? What would the the payments be for a node and then how much profit or free cash flow comes out of the firm in the first place to to help finance that like the math just wasn't working for you? Yeah, I think that that was a big driver. And and obviously, with an outside buyer, you get some real economies of scale around centralized functions. Whereas if you're doing an internal sale, you're still carrying a lot of those expenses. And so does do the numbers pencil out in a way that works both for the exiting generation as well as the incoming generation? Yeah, it's it's one of those things around sort of internal successions and valuations, well, I, I guess really any purchase and and valuations, you know, our, our industry has a tendency to talk about valuations in terms of multiples of revenue. It's it's sort of an easy standard metric. And since, you know, assets are public and fee schedules are public, it's, it's not actually that hard to sort of back into, you know, what, what a valuation is based on a, a multiple of revenue. But at the end of the day, like buyers don't make decisions make based on multiples of revenue they make decisions based on free cash flow like does the cash show up to get some profits in return on my you know purchasing this stock right effectively our profit distributions from firms is a dividend to the person who buys the stock and and if you're in an acquiring context particularly internal succession plans the the profits from the firm is the money that pays the loan you have to take in order to buy the firm. And so part of the reason why historically firms got sold for two times revenue is firms historically sold for, well, firms historically ran at about 25 to 30% profit margins, which means two times revenue is really seven or eight times free cash flow. And it's pretty common that advisory firms will get financed over seven years when you purchase them. And so it's really not rocket science. Like if you buy for seven times cash flow and you finance the purchase over seven years, the money basically funds the purchase <laughs> over seven years. Like that's that's how you make the math work. If you adjust for you know, interest and tax drag and a few other things, you, usually there's a tiny bit of skin in the game early on. But if you get a little bit of growth, usually within just a year or two, the free cash flow profits from the business finances the note for the business. And so you basically get no profits for seven years while you're paying it off. But then eventually you get to the end of the, the payoff of the purchase. And all of a sudden you're the new owner and you're taking home these sizable profits for what you bought. But it all revolves around purchases that are multiples of cash flow, not just multiples of revenue. Because if you make the decision like, hey, 
I make enough money as a firm owner. Like I don't need more out. I'm not trying to run this firm to maximize the profit margins. I, you know, I also want to compensate our people well, and I'm going to do some experimental projects because I'm willing to try it because I got enough money coming out for me. Or, you know, we're just going to do more extra things for our clients because I don't need to run 25% profit margins. 15% is fine with me. Like that may all be well and good as the founder and owner to get your free cash flow that pays your bills and allows your lifestyle. But then when you queue up for a sale, if your firm only generates 15 cents on the dollar of revenue instead of 30 cents on the dollar of revenue and you try to still use traditional industry valuations, the math just doesn't work for the next generation of buyers or really for any buyer unless, as you said, it's a much larger firm that just has lots of cash flow that it can make the long-term investment and maybe try to save a little cost along the way, you know, duplicative software and other things that become cost savings. That's right. And then and then what that does is then it's a decision around cutting costs, which, you know, depending on how you built out the firm may or may not be an option or around raising revenue on the growth side, which can become depending on what that differential there is or how the firm has been run can put a lot of pressure on what is the growth need in order to do an internal an internal succession. Right. You know, if, if you're willing to put, you know, if you're willing as the successor buyer to have a little more skin in the game and you say, hey, you know, is, we're going to buy this and I know like it's not going to cash flow very well in the first year or two, but I got a little savings built up to do this and like I'm super confident I can grow this. Look, if you can grow it fast enough, you can grow your way through the debt payments and then you own the equity and the cash flow on the other end. Like this will go fine if you can grow it fast enough and just bring a little bit of money to the table early on until the growth shows up. But Mm-hmm. then it's either reliant, you know, congratulations, you're the new owner. You know, all that stuff we've been talking about, about grow, 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 and and manage costs, manage costs, manage costs. Well, now you own it and have a giant debt payment. So how do you really feel about managing costs and 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 trying to create more growth around here? Because now, now it's your name on the debt note if you can't make that happen. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and looking at, you know, what's the team that you have in place and, and being, being able to, again, going back to that forecasting function, having good mastery over your numbers and KPIs. And while past performance may not be indicative of future performance, I think that there are some trends there that you can begin to, you know, we looked at scenario planning around, you know, best case scenario, middle of the road and worst case scenario. And when you look at that in the economics, I think that's where an outside buyer becomes really compelling. Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, we we all have different capacities for risk and willingness to take risk, right? We talked about that in terms of clients and how they get invested in what their portfolios are. But, you know, it's it's equally or, or more true when you talk about in the context of buying an advisory firm, taking on what for a you know, a $600 million firm is, you know, a seven figure debt, even split across multiple partners, like everybody's going to be in for a million or few of debt. And, you know, how, how much risk capacity really do you have and you want to take? And how do you feel about that? You know, if you're a huge, if a huge firm buys even a medium sized firm, you know, if, if, if they're running, tens of millions of dollars of revenue than to take a couple million dollars of debt on may be a, you know, a fine business decision for them when it's you and you're looking at your personal balance sheet. That's like, 
your house and an IRA and a million dollar loan, it can get a little freakier really fast. Yeah, I think that's right. To to me, part of what what gets missed in that though is, you know, I, I do still hear a lot of discussion around you know firms that get so large that that next generation buyers like literally mechanically can't buy out the firm. And to me, that always misses kind of misses the point. Like if the business is valued reasonably as a multiple of its cash flow, the the next generation can always buy it out. Because the way the math typically works in the deals is they're structured so that the the cash from the deal finances the note payments to do the purchase. And you just make no money for seven to 10 years while you're waiting to pay off the note. And now there's a bunch of banks that will lend that. But you do get into the question of, you know, is the firm being valued reasonably relative to its free cash flow? And do the people who would buy actually just want to take the risk of that much debt? You know, if you buy the firm and there's just a giant bear market outside of your control and your business's assets under management, you watch your revenue drop 10, 20, 30%. Most of that drops straight to your profits because you still got to pay your staff and overhead. And it's one thing if you just own the firm and say, hey, tough year, I'm not going to take any profits out this year. But when you've got a million dollar loan, you have to come to the table with the cash. And that becomes a risk discussion of, you know, do you really want to take the risk that that's entailed in buying a firm and taking on the debt in order to acquire it? Yeah, it's it's a risk discussion. It's also, I do think that there is something around having a long enough runway or how that gets financed, because depending on what type of financing that you're using, as you talked about, a lot of those notes are seven years, which just as you said, puts a lot of pressure on if there's more flexibility on what that funding might look like, yep. and you can stretch out that window or or at the point of transition, you're buying a smaller portion of the overall business because shares have already been purchased or transferred, then that becomes much more manageable. David Grau at FP Transitions, and I think a few others as well, he's just been more prominent on it, likes to talk about you know succession plans being done as multiple tranches over time. So you're, you're your next generation buyer buys, you know, a few percent now and then a few more and then a few percent more in a couple of years and a few percent more in a couple of years and then does the whole big transaction at the end. And, you know, it it drags out the timeline even further. But part of what makes that work so well is, you know, you can make the first purchase manageable enough that, you know, even if they're maybe not the most risk inclined, they're willing to take a little bit of the risk and they go through the financing and they do the thing and it hopefully the firm grows a little, they get some free cash flow and eventually the note pays off. And so now when they go to do the second tranche, they have the profits from the first one because they've now bought that segment. So they mm-hmm. literally have more free cash flow that they can use to do the second purchase. And then if they do two, they've got even more free cash flow to do the third. And, and I know as David puts it, like, Look, by the time they've done the first one or two and it's gone well and they're seeing their free cash flow lift, you, you'll be amazed how much more willing they are to take on the debt for the third one because now they've actually experienced it go, going well. You know, There's probably a little bit of behavioral bias and overconfidence there that comes through. But by the time some of those tranches have gone well, people suddenly become a lot more willing to buy the subsequent ones in bigger pieces because they both have more free cash flow and – it seems a little less risky when they've confidently done a few. 
Yeah, it's like swimming around in the in the shallow end before you dive into the deep end, right? You get you build that confidence as well, right? What does that process look and feel like? Who's involved in it? How well did it go? And then you're going all in into the deep end. Yeah, and and so part of that is just I think that there is a time element there. So so how do you look at this from from your own career path? You know, I mean, it feels like it's it's a lot of change just for you that you were at the firm for 16 years. There were challenges around paths to partnership, but you did have a growing role. You had clients, you'd taken on a COO role. Now suddenly you're sold, you're at a new firm. They actually offered partnership, but it looks like you're not wearing a COO hat anymore. So like your career is sort of shifted again. Like how, how do you look at all of this from a career progression end and weigh all these roles of partner and COO and advisor and wealth manager and, and the different firms that you get to do this in? Yeah. And, and that's probably one of the, the questions that I get the most, like as I'm talking with advisors around the country is, gosh, what does this mean? And, and how has it been? And so I am, I'm spending my time, you know, really client focused, Something that is cool about a multi-office firm is that there are different ways to get involved. Obviously, yeah, we have a full-time COO who's great, Susan Dixon, and there is full-time dedicated management to running the firm on a day-to-day basis. So advisors are really freed up to be working working with clients. And so that's been a shift, but also actively participating. I mean, we have a number of initiatives going on right now around integration and meeting some objectives on project work there, along with continuing to grow the firm. So that's a a real focus from a business development standpoint. So, So right now, like I'm spending my days probably, gosh, I'm like, what would the breakout be? Yeah, (laughs) You know, it's like maybe like a third of the day is spent on integration components. Although I I suspect we just had our, our six month mark and we've been able to tackle a lot of those big pieces. We're fully integrated now, you know, on the same CRM, still working out some of the processes, but we're all in the same CRM we're all on the same portfolio management software. Next up, we'll be tackling virtual document filing and integrating those systems. So, so that's just been taking up, you know, a big piece. And, and again, I think going back to this idea around how do teams manage through that? And it's a whole lot easier when you've been you've been operating under process ABC and now you're doing DEF or maybe it's CDE, right? There's some overlap and some differences, but it's a lot easier to switch from process from the first process to the second process versus if you had no process at all initially. Right. And so so there's a lot of time and effort right now just spent on on that and making sure that those pieces go smoothly. I mean, that's me and and you know all of the people here in our San Francisco and Walnut Creek offices on the integration piece. So if one third of your day is integration, like what's the what's the rest now? 
Yeah. Well, and when I say integration, I mean, a lot of that also has to do with, you know, reaching out to clients and talking with them. It Communication is so key. I'd say that that's the piece that just can't be undervalued. It's communicating. People need to hear something like seven times before yeah. it really sinks in. And it feels like when you're in the midst of it, gosh, everyone knows what we're doing. Everyone kind of knows what the end game is here. But you realize as you're in the thick of it, just that recalibration around consistent communication, both internally and externally, is so important. And particularly in the advisor role where we have so many clients. If each client needs to hear it seven times in various ways, and you got to carry this message to 50 to 100 plus clients, like you're going to say this literally hundreds of times over and over again, and we'll be saying things you are insanely bored with having repeated so many times. And then you'll say it to a client. They're like, oh, thanks for telling me. I didn't know that. You're like, really? Because I said it like 500 times in the past six months. But you just have to do that sometimes that, you know, I, I think sometimes we still misjudge how many times we can repeat something because we say it over and over again to so many different clients. And it still might be the first time the next client's hearing it. That's right. Or it's the first time that it really lands, or for whatever reason, it landed in a different way. Right. I think that's true on, on everything from saving to spending to looking at, at, you know, what does it mean to be work optional? And we know what we're talking about as advisors, because we are in the thick of it. And we spend, I mean, we spend time probably thinking about clients a lot more than clients think about us. And, and so that's painful. That hurts. It's true. But But it's, it's true. It is true. And, and, and this, this process has been insightful from that perspective. I think a lot about my clients, how will this impact clients? What will the, how will the messaging be received? What will it be like when I get on the phone with them? What will it be like when they come in for a meeting? But their touch point is only that end, that end user experience when I actually reach out and do that. But that might've been hours of preparation on the front end. And, and again, we're, yeah, we're thinking about clients a lot and doing, things in the background, but clients don't always know that. So that's been really insightful there. And then I, you know, the other, the other ways that I'm spending time these days, this has been a real opportunity to circle back to a lot of the professionals that we're working with in the Bay Area that we have longstanding relationships with and just talking about Private Ocean and introducing them to Private Ocean as a brand and as a firm. So I, a nice new fresh conversation for all your referral sources, potential referral sources, centers of influence, like all those folks you've not, not there's anything negative about the old firm, but like got a, got a bigger, newer firm I can go out and talk about and have all these fresh conversations about our new depth and our new capabilities and all these positives that we want to put forward. Yeah, that's right. And, and we, we started a, basically a COI initiative a few years back, also through the Schwab Consulting Services arm, through their their business consulting services around a COI process that has, I think, changed the game for our advisors. And that's now an initiative that's being worked on firm-wide, being headed up by our, our business development person. And so she partners with advisors in now all four offices 
And part of what we've been integrating into that process is talking about private ocean and what are the pieces that are staying the same around how we work with clients and what are new pieces that we're bringing to the table or resources to bear for clients that we're working with. So what is this like COI process that you've found that works so well? Because I, I think for a lot of advisors, we sort of hear like, yes, you're supposed to talk to centers of influence and build relationships with them. And, and then they send you referrals. I'm like I met some, tried to build a relationship, not, not seeing many referrals. Like what's, what's, oh. what's, what's the secret sauce here? Yeah, that could be a whole nother podcast. So I think the 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 high level premise is that that lunch isn't a strategy. We say that a lot in our office and Sheila our business development person she regularly repeats that. So lunch isn't a strategy and what I mean by that well as you know the RIA community I think for so long got so far away from this idea of sales or closing business right and ultimately having a client make a choice to work with you that is that is a sale. Right. And and a lot of the second and third generation employees coming into firms didn't necessarily come out of an insurance or brokerage background and so may not actually have any sort of formalized sales training and so this idea of closing business development and closing business can be I think pretty scary. And so Schwab, through their business consulting group, rolled out and you know they work with different firms across the nation in, in doing this, rolled out what it's a four-step process. Each meeting has an objective and it's how to deepen those relationships. And again, going back to the theme on communication, being really clear about what is it that you're that you're looking for, that you're that you're wanting. So let me give you a specific example here. And learning how to do that. And by the way, that not everyone has to do it in the same way. It's not traditional sales. It it really is developing those relationships, but being clear about what that relationship's about. Right. But knowing like as I go into each meeting, what exactly is my objective in this meeting if I want to advance the relationship building process. That's right. So yeah, so when we initially embarked on this, you know, one of the the pieces is going out and, and kind of reconnecting with COIs that we might have existing relationships with, let's just say. So I vividly remember I reach out to this this CPA who I share a couple of clients with and I reached out and I said, gosh, you know, it occurs to me that we've we've shared these two clients for quite some time, but I've never actually met you in person. We are we are thinking about how we're working with outside professionals and wanting to really partner with other companies that are also building their business and want to grow their firm and figuring out ways that we can come up with more opportunities to work together. And I'd love to to sit down with you and talk about where you are in your business cycle and and how, you know, how you're thinking about client work. You're setting up the hey, we're looking for opportunities for cross referrals, but you know, a much softer way of saying it than, hey, we're looking for opportunities with cross for cross referrals, which for most people basically comes across as I'm looking for referrals and maybe I'll send you some too. Well, actually, you know, it's funny that you say that that's a, that's a soft intro. For us, that was a pretty hard intro, right? We used to call people up and say, hey, do you want to go to lunch? And maybe we'd talk about kind of what was going on in their personal lives and their kids and maybe a little bit about the business and we would never say anything more. 
So for us, this was a pretty big shift being clear about, gosh, I want to get together and actually talk about growing our businesses. And that's what we're going to focus the conversation on. So for us, it felt like that was a kind of a big stretch. But it but it sets the expectations, right? So if they really don't actually care about that stuff, they'll find a polite way to demure and not take you up on it, which is fine because apparently it wasn't fit anyways. And if they are interested, then now you're starting the process. Or maybe not such a, a polite way. So I get this email back <laughs> and the CPA says, you know, I'm closer to retirement than not. That's not really of interest to me, but, you know, thanks anyway. Already then. Well, saved that one hour lunch meeting. That's that's an hour of your life that you get back. It's not a lunch meeting. Remember, lunch isn't a strategy. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. It's going to be a meeting in their office. So yeah, and that that stung right out of the gate, right? And and I was like I was kinda hoping for a better one on the on the first time out. <laughs> And I'm looking at it and, and, you know, luckily I've done a lot of fundraising on the nonprofit side. You have to get a lot of no's before you get a yes. And so I looked at that and I'm like showing it around to other people in the office. Like, how would you respond? Or like, what am I supposed to do? Or gosh. And what I realized was this person had given me a real gift. It was just what you alluded to. One is, you know, I don't have to, in interacting with this particular CPA, I can do that in a way that serves the client well, but I know that I don't have to spend any incremental time in trying to develop a relationship that where there may be additional opportunities. So they really did me a favor. And I actually ended up writing back, gosh, it sounds like you're getting ready to retire. You're a solo practice. Like, do you have a succession plan? Do you have a financial planner? Like we can, I can serve you many ways if you don't want to be in a cross referral relationship. Well, a succession plan for when you're not there and preparing our mutual clients' tax returns, like who's going to be doing that? And I said, are you going to be doing returns in the upcoming years? What is your, you know, since you brought it up, how long will you be around? And they responded saying, well, you know, it should be another year or two. Super insightful, right? So the next time that the client came in, I said, hey, by the way, I've been having a conversation with your CPA, and it sounds like retirement's on the horizon. As you know, they're an individual solo practice. And at the point that they announce retirement, we have resources that we can introduce you to. I'm not going to take away their business because that's a partner, but just to let you know, like when they when they get around to retiring, like we have some other ways we can help too. Exactly. Exactly. So that I think put put us in the driver's seat, again, in deepening the relationship with the client, what's going to be on the horizon, signposting there. This may be a change in the upcoming couple of years. And don't worry, we already have, we're already anticipating your need before you even know it. And we have a resource at the point that that comes to fruition. So that was such a gift. And then there are other professionals that we work with who you write that and they go, wow, like, I, yeah, I'd love to hear about that. And let's talk further about how we might, you know, partner on more, you know, client relationships. And, and so it's been, I think, a real game changer for us. So, so talk to us about business development more broadly as well, because I know you and I actually started in our respective firms at, at right around the same time, like 16 or 17 years ago, when we were both in our early mid-20s. And, you know, 
working with firms that typically work with retirees and fairly affluent retirees, like it's a hard thing for business development when when you're still young and early in your career. Like I remember doing planning work for clients early on where they had grandchildren older than I was. And like, I knew that because I was doing their plan and their grandchildren were in the plan. Like I know for a fact, I am younger than, not even younger than their kids. Like I'm younger than their grandchildren, which is really hard when you're trying to establish professional credibility. So like how is business development, I don't know, like come about or grown or evolved for you? Like starting in that similar sort of environment and needing to figure out like how, how do I do business development as a young person that works with fairly affluent folks who also tend to be the age of my parents or grandparents? If we were on video right now, you'd see I have a big smile on my face because I, I am I am hailing back to those early, <laughs> when I was in my early 20s, and I vividly remember having a client say, you're the age of my irresponsible children. Mm-hmm. And I went, I was like, wow, that, that. <laughs> Can I help you plan for them? <laughs> yeah. And for a long time, I kept saying, gosh, I'm almost 30. And that was like when I was in my mid 20s. And then it was like, yeah. when I was in my early 30s, I was saying, well, I'm almost 40. <laughs> I'll be there in like seven more years. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm finally at a point where, where now I'm, I'm getting signals that, that tell me that maybe I'm older than I feel I am. <laughs> So those conversations have started to shift. You've realized you're out of out of touch with twenty something pop culture. Yeah, i.e., talking to a twenty something employee and going, "Well, I mean, like we're kind of like in the same boat," and then and then it just being completely silent (laughs) (laughs) and realizing, "Wait, what?" Oh no, I feel like I'm still in my early twenties. We're not. So, so I think that it's shifted. Yeah, that's been an interesting evolution. I think in my 20s, the pieces that I think that you can control or the way that you continue to develop relationships with clients who, as you said, may be your parents or grandparents age, I think that there's the way to do that is you, you may not attract them right out of the gate. But if there is a relationship, i.e. through your firm, or you may be a second advisor sitting in on meetings, once you get in there and you begin to develop a relationship and and they understand that you have the technical capability and that you're consistent in follow through and, and providing advice, then I think that there's the ability to begin, you know, getting referrals once you've developed that, that trust. But I think that the other piece that's been a real shift for me is as you probably know, the your client base oftentimes is in a bell curve of about 10 years on either side of your own age. Yep. We we tend to work with our clients our age plus or minus 10 almost throughout our careers, at least in terms of who we naturally attract. Those are the ones that we naturally attract, right? So because I've I've worked at the firm so long and I, you know, and and same with other advisors here in working with, for example, Norm's clients, those are going to be people who are in oftentimes in retirement and outside of that 10 years on either side of my own age. So uh, getting experience there, but the new clients that I seem to attract and work with are in a much different age range, you know, all the way into their, you know, down into their 20s and call it, you know, up into their early 50s would be more of what I might say is my natural kind of 
client base. And it's been interesting, too, because here in the Bay Area, obviously, we have a lot of wealth coming out of the tech side. So they're just finding us in different ways. And I think that they're they're using perhaps even different search criteria to do that first cut and then coming in and meeting with with an advisor. Like prior generations did this by I asked my friends and family for a referral or maybe I, I asked my lawyer or an accountant for a referral and your next generation clients are like they're doing Google searches and using, you know, find an advisor website portals to find their way to you instead of the the friends and family referral approach. Yeah, I think I think it's both, but more and more we are seeing those Google searches and maybe they're using like a validation component around asking people and then cross-checking, but like here's an interesting one. So I had a new client come on who was doing just what you described, doing a Google search, beginning to kind of see and and I think he said he had put in something like financial planner bay area and basically began to understand that two great resources were going to be the FPA finance advisor as well as the CFP board and maybe something through NAPFA and began to look through those databases to to see who might be a good advisor but in the bay area we have a plethora of people right and it's really difficult to tell you know or to differentiate maybe one advisor from the next right we can we can look them up i mean it, to me it's it's sort of the sad reality that on so many of those sites, the like the primary way you screen advisors to filter them down to get to a reasonable list is is zip code. And mm-hmm. Like think about that. Like your most effective way of differentiating the value of your services and why a client should pick you is the zip code of your office. Right. Right. So so here we go. Really, so what he's, you want to differentiate like- on. <laughs> so so here we go. He's looking for an advisor. Any any. He had described this after we had connected because I, you know, I always ask, "How did you find us?" And his his blunt upfront answer was, "Well, I built an algorithm that found you." And I went, "Oh, because you're in the Bay Area, so we we gotta we gotta stereotype Bay Area Silicon Valley a little bit here." So so your prospect built their own algorithm to find you. So so here he is. He's just. I was like, "Well, tell me more about that, right?" So he's describing. He had gone out to these three resources, began to use the filtering functions. It wasn't quite doing it for him, and so he downloaded all of the information, put it into a spreadsheet, built his own algorithm. There were still too many outputs that that came through based on criteria. So then he weighted the criteria, and it came out with or yielded three advisors. And I'm still asking him for this this algorithm, by the way. Yeah, I'm <laughs> curious. Like what is what is someone who puts that much time and thought and energy into quantitatively evaluating optimal advisors? How does that person actually pick the advisor? I would love to know what that weighted scoring criteria was. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think that there's probably something around firm size, type of firm, years of experience, technical expertise, potentially something on a gender lens. And when you begin to put those into a Venn diagram, it's a very small population that will come back. And so then ultimately interviewed three advisors and, and decided to go with us. But that was that was definitely a new a new one for me. And and I think more and more, we're going to see clients finding us as advisors in different ways than traditional means. Yeah. Well, and 
certainly puts a whole reinforcement point back on just digital presence and having a website with good search engine optimization and, and things like that. But yeah, I guess also makes the point there's a lot of room for better tools for helping consumers find an advisor that rely on something a little bit more nuanced than just zip code as a differentiator. Yeah. 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 I always say I, I do get just, I think a point of that that is interesting on that front, which is I have gotten that question too. Gosh, how much time do you really spend, you know, putting content out there and being on social and I think that those pieces are important. I'm not sure that how much that really drives traffic, but what I think it does do, especially for that next generation, that they really kind of, you know, they do stalk you. Once they come up with your name, they'll do sort of these background searches. Who are you? What is your online presence? What have you written about? What can I find about you? So by the time that they come in, again, they already have kind of that third party validation or know something about you. And so that's where the online presence, I think can be really powerful because if you go, if I go and I'm looking up a CPA, for example, going, you know, going back to that and they don't have a website, it's really hard for me or not a good website. It's really hard for me to then refer that person to a client who I know is going to do that search too. Yep. And know that the professional isn't going to show well as a modern professional. That's right. So what, like what's worked for you then in, in trying to find this path towards doing business development and as an advisor who started in your early 20s, aside from, you know, mastering the algorithm optimization <laughs> formula to be the one that comes up in the in the search, like what, where else have you gone? Or what have you done that's worked for you in trying to figure out business development and as a young advisor? Yeah, and, and and I think that that is still one that's in process, we're still trying to, to I think, optimize what that looks like. Some of the pieces that I talked about are around connecting connecting with COIs directly. I think that there's there's real power in the referrals coming from referral partners because those are so often clients that are already ready to make a decision. You know, if you have a client referral, that person may or may not be qualified and they may or may not be actually ready to take a step forward. Right. So, so I think it's it's about running multiple strategies. So it's looking at you know partnering with other COIs. I think it is it is about having content that's out there that can help showcase expertise in a given subject matter, and then figuring out where are you placing that and how are you using that content strategically to connect with the type of clients that you want to be working with. Right. And then it's just it's that same thing. You know, people have to see things or hear things at least seven times. I think it's just being out in the community, frankly, doing things that you really enjoy doing, but also that put you in close proximity to the type of clients that you might want to be working with. It's a world of like volunteering, doing nonprofit work, trying to get on boards, things of that nature. Yeah, that's right. And depending on what organization that is or your target demographic, sometimes that can take years to come to fruition. It it's it's planting seeds and cultivating that over time in a purposeful way. So it, as you kind of look look back on this path of navigating your your career path as an advisor, 
like what surprised you the most about just how it's gone versus how you thought it was going to go in your head when you when you were starting good question <laughs> i you know i think life life changes so it's it's like i always say it's good to set course and have a purpose and a direction of where you're going i would feel pretty aimless if i didn't have that but being able to be flexible and not necessarily wedded or tied into that final destination because things do change along the way. So I I think that one of the surprising factors along that journey is just this. I think that there has been a change within our industry within, call it the last five years on, I don't want to say it's a frenzy, but a lot more activity on the M&A side and the attraction of you know a lot of money coming into the RIA space through VC firms and outside investors that I don't necessarily think was in play 10 years ago which just means like more large firms and very large firms that have where you have opportunities to build a career path in a big firm rather than I think, as you said, like starting in a firm where you were employee number seven when you got there. That's right. And the idea of the industry has begun to attract and build out roles that are very viable for non-client facing staff, operation staff, and having a real expertise in that area. Firms that I think that will grow and excel will be firms that embrace that and seek to build that muscle of having good infrastructure on the operation side to then enable advisors who love to work with clients to really focus there. So any anything looking back that you wish you'd done differently in, in how you navigated the path? I always say no regrets. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that you know, each of the the pieces along the way have, each of the segments, I think, have been really insightful, and I've grown a ton. If you do think about your, I think about my career in segments, right? So if this was my first, it was 16, but, you know, call it the first 15-year segment, you know, now I'm in segment two of my career, and, and you know, that'll bring me into my mid-50s, that could be, and maybe I only get two segments in my career. I mean, maybe there's that third segment, but but the second segment, really thinking about what is it that I want to accomplish, and and you know, my objective would be as much or more than I accomplished in the first segment. Okay, what was the what was the low point for you in your career? Geez, Michael, that's not a very coachy question. <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a coach. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, ooh, low point. Yeah, truthfully, I don't I don't I'm someone who probably focuses more on the positive than than the negative. I don't know if this is a low point, but what I would say that I occasionally think about is the number of people that I've come across in my career that kind of came through Mosaic along the way and that I either miss working with now or that I wonder what it might have been, how things might have turned out differently if, if they would have stayed. And you know, maybe I'll, I would highlight that 
but I'm also the type of person that I don't look back very often. For me, it really is about what's next on the horizon. You you can't change what's happened in the past, but you do have full control over what's in the future. So any other advice for those who are you know, in, in a similar position of where you were, I guess, a year or two ago where you know, the decision is getting made that the firm is going to go up for sale. Hopefully, at least you're finding out about it before. Like you've actually been sold, as you said. Ideally, it's it's a little bit more of a participative process for at least the key folks in the firm. But what do you wish someone had told you or given you a heads up about how it was going to go that that you didn't see coming or that kind of blindsided you in the process? Sorry, what, what do you know now that you wish you'd known then? Yeah, my advice for maybe younger or newer advisors within a firm is be clear about what you want and articulate that and and seek out I'd say seek out mentors and if you know if you're interested in being an owner understanding upfront is that going to be an option at your firm if it's not currently an option what might that look like and starting that process early and I think firms that have resources, i.e., I'd say outside consultants, oftentimes will fare the best in getting those plans implemented early on. So so I would say bringing in outside help in that process early on. So, so it's now like a, a screening question. If I'm interviewing at the firm, I can just ask them like, so do you use outside coaches and consultants? If you do, you'll you'll do more of these things that I'm hoping you'll do. <laughs> Well, I mean, here's here's a way that that conversation could unfold. You know, what you know, what is the long term succession like? And I think that there's two different pieces, right? So we would get the question a lot. Oh gosh, is there a succession plan, which is different than a continuity plan? So you can have a firm that has a continuity plan where it's the firm is not dependent on one person for day to day operations. That is, I think, a good starting place secondarily, then what is the succession plan or ultimately what is the plan for the firm? I think a way to be able to tell that is, you know, what are the types of, I mean, it could be anything from what is the training that you've had for employees in the past? So, you know, do you bring in like outside, you know, speakers or experts and trainers, right? So that's an appetite for not just relying on kind of the echo chamber that exists within your firm, but are is the firm open to and committed to both from a time and money standpoint, leveraging professionals in different focus areas. So that would be, even if they don't have someone that they're working with as an investment banker at current. Firms that are willing to engage outside expertise around training for employees is still a sort of a subtle way to find out if they have the the mindset of engaging outside expertise when they need more help because that probably makes them at least a little bit more likely to be dynamic and make changes in the future as the firm needs to make changes because they recognize that they don't know everything and that there's value to outside perspective. That's right. That's right. And, and, And I think it's not the only indicator, but I think that that could be a good indicator 
And it's like, you know, how do you, if there isn't currently a plan in place, I think it's fair to ask, what might your timing be on on addressing that? Or is that one of the strategic initiatives that is on the horizon for the firm? And firms who have plans or have thought about it, they'll, I would think, be pretty forthright in articulating that. And the answer can be really telling if they don't currently have something in place, how they're thinking about that. It's not so much do they have it in place, it's how are they thinking about that and how might they go about addressing it? Well, and the other thing that still strikes me from just hearing the whole sales story from your perspective is just how much it really is a two-way process of Yes, there are a bunch of buyers who are trying to decide if you're the firm they want to buy because you're you're available for sale, but that from the seller's end, you actually have a maybe surprising amount of control in the process about picking who you want to be bought by, which either isn't necessarily solely a financial question of who's paying the most or just a recognition that at least in the advisory industry, virtually every deal is at least partially contingent on the clients and the revenue sticking around. So if you buy, if you have someone who offers you more, but it's a bad fit, the clients aren't going to stick and it's not actually going to be a more valuable deal in the end anyways, because usually they get adjusted if there's not good retention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that that's something that I I really give Norm a lot of credit on is he he involved multiple people in that process. And so it it was very transparent and very collaborative. And and when you have those pieces in place, it makes for, as you described, a much smoother transition. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success. And one of the themes that always comes up is just that the word success means different things to different people. And so you know, you've had, as you put it, like this, this first segment of your career that's gone incredibly well, and you grew in a firm and got to senior leadership, and now are starting the second segment as an advisor and a, a partner and principal of the firm and, and building for the next stage. But I'm wondering, just for you as at a personal level now, how do you define success for yourself? I'd say success at, at this point in my career is is around being able to spend my time doing things that I really enjoy with people that I with people that I really enjoy. And so that's everything from being excited to come into work each day at the point where it's like if that were a dread, that would be a problem. It's like, well, that would necessitate a change. So success is is feeling good about what I get to do every single day. And while that sounds simple, I realize that for a lot of people and, you know, even clients who come to us, right, who want to make a change, we get to help them define what does success look like and how to how to get there. And and so if I can be living the same values that I'm helping clients to work towards and having those be in alignment with one another, that that's also really important to me. Well, and again, I just love that, you know, you're, you feel you're in that position after the sale, right? Like, again, I think for so many advisors out there, at least that I hear from, like, there's, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of worry. 
whenever they find out that there's going to be a change in ownership and and just you know not to be negative about where the firm was obviously you were pretty happy and content there you stayed there for 16 years but but the idea that like you can go through one of these big transitions and when you actually get a firm that's well aligned they just happen to be bigger with more resources like this can make the second segment even better than the first yeah, and, and I, you know, I give Private Ocean a lot of credit on that front as well. This isn't a, this isn't a come over to our firm and absorb everything that we're doing and you know make a hundred and eighty degree shift. This is here's what we do really well. Here's what you do really well. Let's talk about how we can combine those two components to be even better as a entity together and really treating that at each step of the way in looking at the integration components, what works well here, what do we want to keep and what do we want to change? I think for our staff, that's meant that we felt like that we're making a contribution in the coming together of these firms. Yeah. I love it. Well, when we will have you back again a couple of years, you can give us the like two or three years in debrief. Is it, is it turning out as you'd expected? Although it, it certainly sounds like it's off to as, as good of a start as you could hope or expect, which is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see what is, what is next on the horizon. And, and, you know, just as we continue to, to grow and evolve as a, as an even larger team with four offices. Well, amen. Well, Thank you, Sabrina, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me. You made it a nice conversational piece and enjoyed catching up. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.